From Western Sound and ACAST Studios, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 4, The Wolf and the Sheep, Part 1. I never remember what motivated me to go to Valencia, California, north of L.A., And normally my thing was to just stay as close to the freeway as possible. And as I kept driving from long light to long light, thinking I should turn around here, I'm like, oh, let me just go a little further. There's got to be one here. By the time I get to this bank, I'm like, I'm a mile and a half from the freeway. But there's a bank there. And this is the perfect kind of bank to rob. The thing that makes it perfect is it's right there on the street. There's this giant parking lot all around it, and then behind the parking lot there is a Ralph's and a bunch of stores and probably 20 shops in there easily. And so I said, let me fucking do this thing. So I park back there, walk through the parking lot. It's a long parking lot. You know, it's a good good little walk. I walk inside the bank, and I do my spiel. It's a simple spiel. We have a bomb, we have whatever. I pull the bank robbery. I walk out, and this was one of those fascinating, like, epiphany days. I walk out of the bank, and I start walking through the parking lot. Are you walking or running? No, I'm walking. You're walking. I'm just another person walking between cars in the parking lot. I'm trying to blend in, but I do turn around, and I notice tellers run out of the bank. And as soon as they run out of the bank and they get to the curb, they don't look up and see me. What they do is they immediately come out and they start turning their head left to right and they start looking in the cars that are driving by because they assumed like on TV that there was a getaway driver and I'm in one of those cars because they're buying into the hype. They're buying into the old story. They're buying into some false sense of what happens when I'm the reality of what happens. Like, that was something. I was invisible. I was looking right at them, and I might as well have been a fucking ghost because they could not see me. They never looked up. They didn't know. And I just walked away casually. Later on, I would continue to do that, and I would always look around, and I was marvel at that. But I remember that was the first time where I was like, whoa, I'm right here. What the fuck? How come you can't see me? You know, it was really strange. It was uh, an interesting thing on human psychology, you know, to understand that that's what was going on. I got away. Part one, the home front. So Joe, you're nine when your mom passes away and then you have this big moment of release after she passes. But then it's just you, your brother, and your dad together. What happens next? After my mother passed away, I became extremely anxious. Do we have enough money for rent? Mm, do we pay all our bills? How about food? Where's the food coming from? Like, I understood that there was these financial stresses on my father because of the hospital bills and things. And so I started like, oh, shit, things can happen. Things are going, you know, rocky. I was in, totally insecure about finances and money and totally harassed me, threw me off kilter, which later would inform the bank robberies. So I'm this little boy who's naturally 
becoming anxious about my existence because my mother's dying. There's all this turbulence or whatever, and I'm just trying to find purchase somewhere, right? And my dad just nicknamed me Mr. Nerves. Hmm. And so this thing that should have been handled, like if a kid came, if somebody came to me and said their kid's going through this, I would say, get them a psychologist, man, get them counseling. They need help. But at the time, I was just mocked for being troubled, mm. for being normally troubled. And I was also starting to act out. So I was considered a sinner, a bad kid, a bad boy, because I was starting to act out because I wasn't being, nothing about me was being addressed. So the violence escalates after my mother passes away. And um, he starts dating a woman. Within a year, he's married again. Hmm. Because he needs a wife for, and he needs a mother for his kids, and the old, and then you know it's kind of an old school kind of way of thinking about it, right? In the old country, that's what you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to marry somebody because I got someone to take care of my kids. And uh, Brenda was twenty, I was ten, my dad was twenty-six. Hmm. Yeah, she was still in college. He started dating her and she moved in a neighborhood and she she got an apartment nearby us and in a sea of brown people there's this very light-skinned woman irish american reddish blonde hair freckles and um we were i was amazed by her she had this thing called potpourri (laughs) like what what wizardry is this (laughs) it's just like like she had, like we walked into her little apartment, man, and she had like a chest. I was like, oh, what is that at the foot of her bed? And she had a quilt. I was like, what the hell is that? She had candles, these thick candles. I was like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> like it was a, it was like stepping into a Ethan Allen showroom or something. I felt like I was like, wow, this woman lives differently than us. You know, she was not East LA Mexican. She was not. You know, Maravilla Projects, she was none of that. She was, she was white. You know, and she was raised in Turlock, California. She was a daughter of people who farmed. Um, she baked her own granola, baked her own bread, canned her own jellies. I got, found my love of marmalade from her making marmalade. So you liked her right away? I mean, we liked her, yeah. She was very, very cool uh, to us. She wasn't my mother. There wasn't a big, like, she's not warm. But she didn't have to be super warm because we were desperate for female affection. And we needed mother energy. And one thing she gave us was mother energy. She made our curtains in our room. She made our pillowcases. She coordinated them so that we looked like we had a sailor-themed room. <laughs> like, she was like that. We had, you know, we didn't have only curtains in our room. She made awnings in our room. Over the window, we had these little awnings. I mean, just, uh, she was amazing. I mean, I, I loved her for exposing me and, and opening my world in so many lovely ways. Here, you boys, you need to eat. She fed us. She made homemade food for us all the time that was... You have to have these veggies. You have to have this much, you know, this, like, she understood diet in a way that I never, like, she was the first one who, the concept of, you need this many vegetables in your food, you need this many, like, like that, a vegetable every meal, that kind of thing. Um, and when she packed us lunches, they weren't always the healthiest lunches, but they were the best lunches at school, hands down. 
people want, all the kids want to trade with us. That bag, you know, you, you have, you have most kids that come with a folded bag. Ours barely had enough room at the top to fold it. I'm like, we carried a bag of food to school. We had it going on. That woman took care of us, and we felt like we were, like we were taken care of. I remember the first time she took us to, she, she's like, you know, your boys need to go to the dentist. My dad's like, oh, okay. And she was like, when was the last time they went? And he was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, she goes, you kidding me? They need to go to the dentist every year. Like, she brought a whole new ethos. She, she exposed us to that. My dad wanted us to read the Bible every day. We would read a little bit of New Testament and Old Testament. So Brenda came along and said, okay, that's cool, but the boys need to read literature too. And so here, boys, read Jane Eyre, read Wuthering Heights, read Robinson Crusoe, read Frankenstein, read um, Les Miserables. Like she was the one who said, you guys need to read these books. So my dad was like, okay, if you're going to make them read them, they have to write book reports. And then we started writing book reports. And if he didn't like it, we got spanked. So like that kind of took, <laughs> kind of ruined a good thing. But <laughs> she was like, uh, no, you don't want to traumatize her around literature. But all good literature should have some trauma associated with it, I think. Did you ever feel guilty for liking her so much? Yes. I remember in the very beginning, actually. Um, I made a quiet pact with my mother, my dead mother, that I would not, not ever love Brenda more than my mom. Don't worry, I was like, don't worry, mom. I'm not going to give her that. I'm going to be, you're not going to get to me. I have allegiance to my mother. But Jesus Christ, I mean, I eventually... Loved Brenda more than anyone could have loved Brenda because I had now the convert zeal. <laughs> like, once I did go over to it, I was like, now I got to righteously love this woman because now I'm all in with this, right? So I think I did feel guilty that I loved her so much, that I appreciated her so much, that I needed her so much, you know? Like, she would show up to school for things. I'm thinking of specifically being at school. And, and and then Brenda having to pick me up because I got sick or injured or um, parent-teacher conference. But I remember Brenda coming to school and me thinking, and people saying, is that your maid? And I say, no, that's my mom. Like, proud that this person was my mom coming to school to do what she was supposed to do for me. You know, like that, I definitely had that feeling. Like, she did what mothers are supposed to do. You know, I, 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 I do what I do. As a dad, I'm driving my daughter around, you know, we go do this, we gotta do that. And I think like, this is the way we were in the back of Brenda's Dodge Dart. She, she would drive us to go, gotta go to this point. Gotta, I mean, I feel like that's what I'm doing, you know? Like I'm doing what Brenda did for us. You take care of your kids, you feed them, you pack them up, you make them proud of the little lunch you give them and stuff. You know, that's, that's how I parent. So she was very influential and I'm grateful for that. But during the same time, like what was going on with your dad? This is the thing about my dad. My dad was not 24-7 raging, punching. But my dad was 24-7 organize your life around his moods. So you always had to be on guard, always paying attention to his mood. And you never wanted to set anything off. So he could be good and nice and kind for a long time, but you always understood that underneath there, at any minute, something could blow. So if he said, Joey, Paul, get over here, 
man, we would run over there. We knew we were in trouble. And we just were like, what? We knew that we did not want to set him off anymore if he was angry. And so when he would call, boom, man, we were on, Johnny on point. And if it meant we were going to get a fist to the jaw and he said, get back up, we'd get back up and get the fist in the jaw. And also, you know, just, man, I was terrified. Would you like... Watch his, watch his movements when just, he comes home. No, you know, when to you're raising it, yeah, listen to your, which you, you would listen the way he slammed the door in the driveway. When he, I mean, just depending on that, you'd be like, oh, fuck. The walk, walk up, the way he opened the door, the way he slammed the door, closed the door. You could hear whole, whole moods in the way he closed the window or opened the window. Just, there is that. I mean, when you're, when you're plugged into somebody like that, it's you're this small animal on the jungle floor just listening to everything picking up everything which creates its own kind of anxiety right but that's another feeling of helplessness I did not like organizing my life around that man's moods we did not want to upset him any more than he might possibly be upset you know yeah I was terrified of my father we'll be right back Part 2. New wife, new life. I rented a room in a house going to college, and my landlady and her husband attended a church that had a very active college-age group, and I started attending. Joe was its teacher. This is Brenda formerly Joe Sr.'s wife and Joe Jr.'s stepmom. Uh, when she says Joe, she's talking about Joe Sr., our bank robber Joe, she calls Joey. He was very compelling, wonderful presence in a podium, very scholastic to this day, probably one of the more intelligent men I've ever met. How do we talk about Brenda? First of all, she doesn't want us to use her last name or give any details about where she is now or what she's doing now. She loved the boys back then, still loves the boys, especially Joe's brother Paul. She still feels close to him. Even though she tries really hard not to think about that period of her life anymore. She tries really hard not to think about Joe Sr. I was from out of town. I thought it was a great way to start getting to know people. And I don't recall exactly when we started dating. We were going to the same school. Um... We didn't have a lot of time. We were students and we were working. We, I remember we were in the car and driving somewhere. I think he was taking me home. And he was rambling on about something. And suddenly he just said, and you should know, I think I'm falling in love with you. Yeah, that was my response too. It was like, where did that come from? I mean, I knew he was interested. But I also knew he was a lonely man with a lot on his plate. And... um I was from out of town. I didn't know many people other than, you know, at school. I think I was just very surprised that he would single me out. To me, he was, he had a very established relationship. He had a very high profile in the community. He rubbed shoulders with some very important people. He was young yet, but he had a reputation that was stellar. Everyone that knew him thought he was wonderful. And so I was automatically in I think that's what was really nice about it. I, now I had friends, a circle of people, a place. 
So, but you met you met the boys, mm-hmm. and that was you were engaged at that point. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we had uh, we'd made the announcement. Mm-hmm. What, what was your first impression of them? Paul was the imp. You know, he was the little shy one, and I remember he just sort of giggled. I, I remember I knelt down. They were so little, and I kind of got down on my knees and said, I'm glad to meet, I'm very pleased to meet you. Did your daddy explain everything? And Joey said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And Paul just kind of giggled and walked up to me. He had a little habit. He would rub someone's earlobe if he liked them or felt comfortable with them. It was just a little habit he had. And he reached over and he rubbed my earlobe and he said, welcome to the family. I I was in. You know, he had me, (laughs) he had me at Welcome to the Family, and Joey was grinning. My impression of them was they were very lonely little boys. Um, I remember the house, the apartment was just filthy, very dirty. And again, I thought, you know, widowed man going to school, holding a job and raising two kids, of course it is. I remember that. Um, The boys were skittish. They were ill at ease. And Joe, my husband, seemed to me to be very distracted, um, busy doing other things. Um, I just thought, okay, we'll fix this. This is easy. I know how to do this. You know, a little good loving, a little good cooking, a few good jokes, a little, you know, mom stuff, and we can fix this. Their little room was just shabby. You know, it was just a very understandable situation. But I went in and um, painted a dresser and got the matching bedspreads and curtains and all of this and surprised them when they got home. Um, They were almost in tears. And they bragged about that to everybody they met. I heard about it for years. To me, it was just, hey, it's high time you guys had some curtains on the window. I, I just didn't realize how, what a big deal it was to them. And again, it was somebody thought enough of us to do this. I was beginning to get the lay of the land by that time in my marriage. And I was beginning to understand where these little ones were coming from. And um, that any little kindness struck them very, very deeply. Do you remember the first time you saw the facts? Of the violence? Yes, probably on my honeymoon. Nothing as overt as came later. When, when did things start happening with the kids, or when did you start seeing things happening with the kids? Early, very early on. I noticed their behavior, their response to their father, and it got my attention. It it struck me as odd, but when he would call for them to come, they would run. They would drop whatever they were doing, and they would run, and they would stand at attention, like little soldiers, very stiff. It was obvious to me they'd been taught to do that. That was how they responded when Daddy called, and they would wait. And sometimes it was just something very slight, and they'd go, oh, you know, relax. They never knew if they were being called in to be reprimanded or 
just ask a simple question. So that struck me first, that they were so formal and trained and expectant of something harmful, something violent. When did you first see him hit his kids? I don't remember. I don't remember what it was for. It could happen. Yes, I do. I think. I think this might have been the first. He was, Joe was sitting at the end of a sofa when Paul walked in from outside playing. And Joe had put his ink pen on the floor because he didn't want to risk getting ink on the sofa. Paul walked in and he saw the pen and he thought his dad had dropped it. And so he picked it up and gave it back to him. And, and Joe was concentrating on what was in the book and he just says, oh, thanks, mijo. And he took the pen. And like he wasn't even thinking about it. Paul went in, I think he went to the bathroom and on the way back out, the pen was back on the floor because Joe had just absentmindedly put it back down. And Paul just kind of grinned and he picked it up again and handed it back to his dad. No, he set it down on the couch next to his dad. And this time, Joe looked up and focused on what was happening. And he slapped the boy across the face with the back of his hand, hard. Mm. Paul staggered backwards. The boy did the same thing twice. Once he's thanked for it, and the next time he was hit in the face for it. And Joe didn't say anything. He just went back to his studying, and Paul Peter just sort of walked out of the house real fast. And that was, you never knew. You never knew when it was coming or for why. Their father was a violent man. He was a very violent man. And I still did not know the extent to which that had been needed out on them. And I was still at a point where I was making excuses and trying to rationalize that, well, he'd been under so much stress. Well, his wife was sick and then she died. And just trying to hold on to a reason to make this good and to want this family, I was running out of excuses. Mm. Now he did have support and he did have someone to take care of the children. And he did have all of these things that he said had triggered his temper. I was getting very much afraid that this wasn't circumstantial. This was just the man I had married, and I was in over my head. We'll be right back. Part three. Three of a kind. Let's start this segment with Joe's brother, Paul. You know, my dad was was pretty cruel. Uh, very cruel. Very cruel. He was very cruel at, the, at a lot of times. And, and I, I think I got the brunt of it because my dad was the type of person at the time that really respected firmness. You know, if he hit you strong and, and then Joe brought strength back, he respected that Joe was giving him back strength. You know, like Joe would give him lip back and, you know, like he would get hit, but Joe would give him lip back, that type of thing. And, you know, odd as it seems, my dad respected that because Joe was like, 
you know, strength versus strength. And, and because I cowered and because I, um, I was an emotional kid, he didn't respect that. So my dad really tore into me a lot more so than Joe because of me being emotional. And so, you know, I was the one that got spit at. I was the one that got choked. I was the one that was told, you know, you know, really, really horrible things. The boys handled the violence differently. Joey would try to talk his way out of it. He could charm his father. He could minimize the violence. He could minimize the discipline. Paul couldn't. Paul just got scared, started shaking, and would run if he could. He ran away lots of times and would stay out overnight as a 9, 10, 11-year-old boy. Um, we had this storage bin right in back of the back door. And one time I, he stayed out all night, and I found evidence that he had hidden in that cubicle. There was a little place where he had curled up to stay warm. And I didn't mention it to him, but I put a loaf of bread in a Tupperware container, and I put the bread and a jar of peanut butter in that cubicle. So the next time he hid there, he had something to eat. Jeez. Um, or he would jump out the bedroom window. And we were on the first floor, but it was on a very high foundation. And it was quite a drop. I remember I found a, a milk crate, a heavy-duty plastic milk crate. And I put it under the window in the bushes. So when Paul was running from the violence, he wouldn't get hurt jumping out of the window. There's a story... That's kind of embarrassing for me to share, but this is the type of home we lived in. Um, I had growing up, uh, I wouldn't say mental health issues. I would just say like emotional issues. I would just say that I was an emotional child. I lost my mother at eight. By nine, you know, I'd had a stepmother who was an amazing woman, but I still had a void in my life. And uh, I had a father who started hitting me. And I was a, I was a child who whose main raw vein was fear. I was always afraid. I was always afraid of being hit. I was always afraid of, of what was going to happen. And I lived my life like that. And uh, Joe knew that. Joe certainly knew that. And um, I remember walking home one day. I had pooped in my pants, and it was, like, really bad. And I didn't know what to do with, like, my underwear, man. It was like, what the hell do you do, you know? You know? And, and uh, how old were you? Too old to be, yeah. Like, like I was in junior high. Okay. Yeah, and we walked like a half a mile home, man. <laughs> like people, like figure, people had figured out, like, man, that dude, there's something to follow there. But like, I, I went home, and I know, I don't know why I did it, man. But like, I, I put like my dirty underwear in my dad's um, navy pea coat in like the one of his pockets, <laughs> and like the next day, man, the next day, my dad, you know, of course, it's like the next day, and and. It's super cold. He goes out in the rain and, you know, he needs his peacoat and goes in my closet and gets it. And then all of a sudden he comes back in and I get, I get whipped pretty bad. And I ran away from home a lot. And that was one of the times I ran away. And Joe would always beg me, no, don't do it, don't do it. And I think that's the start of, like, Joe figuring out, like, he couldn't protect me. And Joe wanted to protect me, but he couldn't. And those are, the, those are like, early, early stories of, like, Joe not being able to protect me.
I was considered a sinner, a bad kid, a bad boy, because I was starting to act up. So I start ditching school, and I start lying a lot, and I start um, pull the fire alarms in eighth grade, like a bunch in one week, and I finally get caught and kicked out of school or suspended, you know. I don't tell my dad. In fact, I tell the teachers, don't call my dad, don't call my dad. He beats us. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to give you this note. Give it to your dad so that he can call us. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> I got whacked with a paddle, and then I sent home. I didn't show him that note. And for a whole week, I had my friends would come over, and we would party at the house. And then um, they would go, and one time we stole a bunch of girly magazines from somewhere in... Uh, we came home and one of my stupid friends tore a bunch of naked photos of, you know, these naked pictures of women and shoved them in our in the mailboxes. And so my dad comes home, he finds this naked thing in the mailbox, and he decides to go looking for porn in our room. He lifts up the mattress, and what's right under the mattress? The note from school. <laughs> Yikes. I don't know why I put it there. I'm an idiot. But, uh, this, I mean, we should just start this whole podcast with, like, all right, you're going to hear some really great stories, but let's just establish I'm a fucking idiot in most of these stories. <laughs> most, and I, yeah. most kids probably would have thrown that note away. <laughs> anyway, the point is that I get busted, and my dad beats that shit out of me, man. He beats me so bad. I was actually supposed to go to school the next day. Brenda at that time was working for McLaren Hall, which is a place she was doing. She was such a great typist. She would type these reports for all these abused kids who were getting taken out of their homes and put in McLaren Hall to go into foster care, right? And she was like, you cannot send the boys to school tomorrow. They have too many bruises on them. They'll be in trouble. And, mm. you know, like, this could get you in trouble. And I'm like, my ears perk up. Like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> this is this is a thing that's not supposed to happen? Hmm. You know, like, it's just, I thought that this was what we were, what we were allowed. My parents were allowed to just punch on us, you know? Because it's funny. When I told the school that it happened, they were like, okay, that happens. So give them this note. They didn't call, you know, they didn't, they didn't interrupt it anyway. Right. So it was just terrible for us. And I mean, remember, I was like, I, he beat me good, good. Was it with his fists? Was it with About, uh, you know, things. But I remember being spanked so badly on my ass. At one point, he just went up. So, like, my my lower back had bruises on it, welts on it, you know? He was terrible with that stuff. So, yeah, I couldn't go even, even like, it took me a while for, and she kept saying, you can't, you can't go, you can't do PE, you can't wear shorts. This, they'll see the thighs, the bruises on the thighs from the bell whippings, right? As I said earlier, I felt quite capable going into the marriage, but very soon I felt overwhelmed, and it was almost like me and Joey and Paul were children together, and we were growing up together and trying to cope with this situation. We were all in the same boat, hmm. just covering for one another, the guilt of knowing that I was deceiving a husband going behind his back, that got to me, but what what, how, do you, how do you choose, you know, your loyalty to a husband, your ideas, your assumptions about marriage, or these little boys who were being abused? And then I went to work at McLaren Hall and found out it was more serious than even I thought. 
McLaren Hall is a center for dependent children, not delinquent. So children were brought, maybe their parents had been arrested and they just had to have a place to stay while a foster home was found. But the vast majority of them were there because they were being abused. I was um, basically typing up court documents um, for these children who were brought there. And now I was writing up things that matched what was going on in my home. I was shocked. I was shocked. This was against the law. The social workers would write up in succinct points what had gone on in the home. Electrical cords, uh, beatings with pool cues, um, the push-up position, things that I thought just happened in my home. It was against the law And often, say it was the father who was abusing, if the mother knew about it and did not step in to help her children, she was prosecuted too. That struck me very hard. I was held legally responsible. I was doing what I could on a personal level to come between them and their father, but I found out that wasn't enough. The law said, no, you're not. No, you're not. You've got choices to make here, lady. Um, so after you after you found that out, like, how did your behavior change? I think I got a little bit more confrontive with my husband. Um, and things really started to go downhill at that point. And the violence got worse. Violence to the children and to me because he was losing control. You know, it's that, that spiral. Downward spiral. Um, and it got more and more serious. And I eventually decided to go for help soon thereafter. You're listening to The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. This has been Episode 4, The Wolf and the Sheep, Part 1. We've been getting really great response from people who have been listening to the show. Uh, lots of great reviews in the Apple Podcast app. If you haven't left your review yet, please go there and do that. Uh, it's a really great way for us to get feedback about the show. And we do know that there are still some people who haven't heard it. So share with your friends. Also follow us on Instagram at thescore.podcast. And we have a website, thescorepodcast.co. Uh, executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leon. Production assistance from Annette Runhell. Mixing by John Evans Evans. Next up is episode five, The Wolf and the Sheep, part two. Stay tuned.